This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Well, this time we're going to just have a singular message on the book of Jude. So open your Bible, click through on your device to Jude. Jude is a one-chapter book. It does not have chapter numbers. It just has verse numbers. We will be in verse 17, and we will go to verse 23. Jude is the uh, second-to-last book in the Bible. It is right before the book of Revelation. And as I thought about what I wanted to say just as we had one Sunday, I want to talk about the topic of discernment. How can we discern things we are hearing, the messages we are trying to process. How does a Christian discern the events, the times we live in? 2020 has been a tough year. Can I get an amen? Amen. That may be the understatement of the century that 2020 has been a tough year. And listen, I don't want to depress you, but it's been a really tough year, and we still have the meat of a presidential election cycle to go through. You realize it's just ramping up, this presidential election stuff. In most years, that's the tough part. That's the hard part. So on this Labor Day weekend, before we launch into the really ambitious and important fall sermon series I just told you about, I want to take a moment this morning to talk about processing messages and being discerning Christians. How do we, as followers of Jesus Christ, who is our King, take in, roll around, process, and participate in the world during these days? And how do we contend for our faith and press into God in the midst of uncertainty, division, in a very, very anxious world? This is certainly not the first time that Christians have had to ask these questions. Let's not be historically ignorant. We've been asking questions about discernment, processing through uncertainty as a global church, what Hebrews calls a great cloud of witnesses, for a couple of thousand years now. So we don't need new answers to discernment this morning. 2020 is different but it's not unique. We don't need something original. In fact, that's usually when Christians get into trouble is when we're searching for the new thing, the cool thing, the clever thing. What we need as Christians this year is the timeless wisdom of God passed down by His people throughout the centuries and in the Scriptures. That's what we need. So in this tiny book of Jude... Right before the Bible concludes in Revelation, we find words from a teacher to a people about false messages, about uncertainty, and about how to handle the time they lived in. So before we get into this, let me just tell you what we know about Jude, because a lot of us aren't familiar with this really small book, kind of hides in there between 3 John and Revelation. We can't be certain, but it was probably written 
by a half-brother of Jesus Christ. That means that Jude's dad was Joseph. His mom was Mary. And we think that, we conclude that because he calls himself the brother of James, and he probably means, without much more introduction of James, the James who was also another half-brother of Jesus and was prominent in the Jerusalem church, the early church. At the beginning of the letter, Jude calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ, not a brother. And so why not be more specific? Why doesn't Jude say, I'm a brother of Jesus? And my best guess to answer that question is simply humility. Jude knew that just because he was brothers with Jesus didn't give him a special spiritual stature. Instead, he wanted to be known as a servant of the Lord. It's a short letter. We don't even know exactly when it was written. My best guess is mid-latter part of the first century, probably late 60s, early 70s A.D. And it's just got kind of three small parts. Verses 1 to 4 are about contending for the faith, the need to contend for the faith. Verses 5 through 16 are about learning lessons from the past. And verses 17 all the way to the end are about holding fast to God. Jude 24 and 25 may be familiar to you if you're in church. We use them for benediction or our closing words, charge as we leave quite a bit. We're going to be concentrating on verses 17 to 23, so let me read them for us. Jude 17, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire, to show others mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh." Let's join together in a word of prayer. God, grant us this discernment, we pray. May we learn from this ancient letter, not trying to create that which is new, but holding fast to your timeless word. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to move quickly through the passage because I want to save as much of our time as possible for the application. We're reading a warning to watch out for false teaching, and so I don't think it would make much sense to read it without putting that into practice. We want to put into practice what it looks like to look for false teaching. So look with me again at verse 17. He calls his readers beloved. It clues us into two things. First, It's a really direct contrast with the section where he's just come out of, where he calls false teachers proud and selfish whiners. Now, whiners is not the biblical word. That's my word. But it literally says discontented grumblers. 
So I don't think whiners is really too far off. So in calling these people beloved, he reminds us that he is talking not to false teachers here. He is talking to faithful Christians. These are Christian readers. This is about discernment and calling out false teachers, but it's not written to ungodly people. It's written to the godly. And second, he calls them beloved. I think it's supposed to mean that he has a close personal relationship with the people that he's writing to. We get a little bit of this in 1 Corinthians, in verse nine, verse five, uh, chapter 9, verse 5, that says that he, this might have been a letter to a Jewish community living amongst a mostly Gentile people somewhere in the eastern Mediterranean. So modern-day Middle East, someplace. That's all we know for certain. But I think he knew his readers, and I think his readers knew Jude. Verse 18 seems to be a specific message from the apostles to the early church. Now, these words do not appear anywhere else exactly in the scriptures, but 2 Peter 3.3 is pretty close. There it says, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires. And listen to what specifically According to first, or 2 Peter 3, verse 4, they will say, they'll ask, where is this coming that he promised? That's the question that they're going to ask when they're trying to divert people from the faith, is where is the coming? The second coming. And they will question Christians about people who have died, it also says in 2 Peter 3, 4, about people who have died waiting for Jesus to come back. This is going to be a tactic of the ungodly, of false teachers. It's going to be the tip of the spear. If we extrapolate this out a little bit then, this is what we can find out. There will be angry, godless people who will come and their questions will concern the second coming of Jesus. Where is he, they will ask. By doing that, they're also going to call into question the resurrection Again, same idea. Where is he? Now, here's why this works and it doesn't work. It works to dissuade people from the faith if you can get them to question the resurrection and the second coming of Jesus because the resurrection and the second coming change everything about the Christian faith. If Jesus died, if he rose again, and he is alive in heaven right now, And he is going to imminently come without warning. And his coming means salvation for some and judgment to others. Then you have to take that not just seriously, but your whole life has to be about the one who died, was raised again, lives, and will come to judge the living and the dead. Your whole life has to be about that. But false teachers want to say if that's not true, then you can basically live however you want because there are no consequences. Ask yourself this when you are considering the message that you are hearing, when you're considering the teaching that you're hearing, when you're watching television or taking in news. Ask yourself this question. Where is the resurrection of Jesus Christ in this message? Where is the resurrection of Jesus 
in what I am hearing. What does this that I am hearing have to do with the second coming? If Jesus came again right now, what difference would it make what I'm hearing in this moment? If the answer is either that it wouldn't matter anymore or what you're listening to doesn't have any regard for Jesus coming again, then you can be sure what you're listening to is from the world and has nothing of eternal value for you. It's not worthy of your hope because it's not going to last for very long. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't engage with things that only last as long as this world, but it does mean that we should put our priorities in the right order. We're going to have a presidential election in a couple of months, but none of what will be talked about has to do with the second coming of Jesus Christ. So hear me well on this. Hear me really well on this. I'm not saying you can't take an interest and participate and engage with this election. But I want to be very clear. I want you to clearly hear me say that if you're putting too much hope there in this election, this is a warning for you. This is to you specifically. If you can clear your head for a minute and for, for a moment of honesty say that I am more concerned with what happens in November than I am for looking than I am looking for the return of Christ, then you do need to evaluate your mindset. False teachers will dissuade and distract us from the second coming of Jesus Christ. The mindset of the Christian should be always on the living Christ in his imminent return. Now verse 20. How does Jude tell us to watch out for and contend against false teaching? We watch out for it, we see it, we identify it, but how do we contend for the faith? A few things, and we'll talk about each. Verse 20. Focus on your life of faith and prayer. How do you contend for the faith? Focus on your life of faith and pray. Verse 21, wait for Jesus. That's what we've just seen. Put your hope in him, not of the things of this world. And verses 22 and 23, show mercy. Show mercy to people who doubt. Show mercy to people who've gone beyond doubt and now their salvation's in jeopardy. And third, show mercy to false teachers, or at least people who have begun to wholeheartedly follow them. Even false teachers need mercy. That's what it means to show mercy. It's a bit of a strange phrase, the last thing we read. Show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. So Judah's saying, be cautious be careful. You can even hate what, you're, what this looks like, but you still need to show mercy in the face of falsehood. So the message is clear. Jude's brother James 
wrote in his letter, 2.13, I believe, James 2.13, that mercy triumphs over judgment. You are not going to win people through condemnation or disgust. Have you ever read something on Facebook of an opposite political view that made fun of your view and thought, oh my gosh, I'm so stupid, the poster is so right, I'm an idiot, I need to change. No, mercy triumphs over judgment. You don't win people. We don't win people through judgment. We don't win people through condensation. Condensation is not the right word. Through being condescending. That's not how you win people. That's not how Christians are to act. If you're going to win over people who aren't just wandering, who aren't just lost, but they are in full-on defiance against God, they're living in full idolatry, and in some cases even looking to poach people away from the church. You do that with your eyes wide open, but you don't do it with anger, you do it with love. Nobody did this better than Jesus. When Jesus could see that people were really closed off, there was nothing to be won there, he could be pretty direct. Sometimes he could even come across harshly, but when he saw someone that could be reached, when he saw someone who he thought he had a chance with, he is very tender, soft, approachable, and he's open. Mercy triumphs over judgment. How we win people. So let's put this together a little bit. The main message of Jude is to be forewarned. Be forewarned so you can be ready. You're looking for people who deny the resurrection power and the future plan of God. And when you see it, you're supposed to plant your hope firmly in Jesus, waiting patiently but expectantly for Him. And as you contend for the faith, we're to do that with a merciful spirit. Now, don't confuse mercy with timidity. Jude doesn't want us to cower in the corner. He wants us to expect that the systems of this world and the people from and, and the people who bring those systems into play, that there's going to be tension there, that the church and the systems of this world will always be at odds. The gospel and the church, the hope of Jesus and people who trust in him, they're always going to feel to look different and feel threatening to people who don't know Jesus. They don't know that Jesus has been raised from the dead. They don't know that he lives now, and they don't know that he's going to come again. And so the church will always feel foreign, even threatening to people who hope in this world. The Apostle Paul said that some people will look at the church, and they will see, and they will smell death, because they're reminded in a subconscious way that they are dead and dying when they see Christians in the church. They will know deep down that they don't have life. To others, Christians will look like the aroma of life because we know Jesus and we will live forever with him. And to people who also know Christ, people are open to knowing Christ, 
will look like the aroma of life. So in the world, we're not to be timid or proud. We are to be humble and merciful toward people who sense that they're living for the wrong things, but they just don't know what the right things are. And so sometimes, folks, we, gotta, we, we have to understand that people who are living for this world and don't see things clearly, they are going to lash out in fear and in anger and in indifference. They'll be arrogant. We have to expect that from people who are putting their hope in this world. And toward all of that, even in the midst of that anger, that indifference, and that arrogance, we're called to show mercy. I'm going to call this compassionate courage. Let me just give you a few, a few traits of the compassionately courageous. First trait of the compassionately courageous. We can't be surprised by sin and failure around us. We can't be caught off guard by sin. This does not mean that we accept it, and we certainly don't applaud it. But every time I see a Christian wrestling with how another person can fail them, I I can't help but wonder how much of God's word they've taken to heart. The Bible is filled with resilient, faithful heroes, but every single one of them is a flawed man or woman. Absolutely, there's some people in the Bible who are godly. And there are those who are clearly more godly than others. But as you read the Bible and you see how similar people really are, there is a message that should jump out to you about everybody in the Bible. Every other person is sinful, flawed, and capable of failure. And the only exception is Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can never possibly fail us. That's why all the biblical heroes have flaws. And they're brought out in the scriptures so you can see how different Jesus is. So you can see how much better Jesus is. So you can see that Jesus is the one and the only one worthy of our hope. There's one box with everybody They're capable of letting you down, making the wrong decisions, failing you, and then there's another box, and Jesus is the only one in that box. He never fails. He's always right and good and perfect. He's there for you. You can look up to other people. You can have heroes. That's fine. But make sure you're not looking at them in such a way that if their humanity, sinful humanity, comes through, you will be disappointed and it will shake your faith. If you're doing that, you're you're being set up for a tremendous amount of disappointment. Jesus is the real hero. We shouldn't be surprised. Compassionately courageous people can't be surprised that people let him down. Second trait of the compassionately courageous. We are not too closely aligned with the systems of this world. The compassionately courageous cannot be too closely aligned with the systems of this world. I'm going to say this, and again, I want you to really clear me, clearly hear me say the words that I'm saying. And if you want to talk about it, I'm here for this conversation. I'm here for this with you. If there is a group or a party 
or especially a single person in this world that you have too much hope in, hope that should be reserved only for God and hope that only God can fulfill, if you're putting that kind of hope in a system, in a group, or in particular in one representative of that system, in this world, you are headed down a dangerous path of deception and denial. And your hope is most likely not in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Let me be more specific. Your hope cannot be in a church, local church. It can't be in a pastor. This is a good church. I want to be a good pastor. But all your hope can't be in this place and it can't be in me. It has to be in the Jesus that we gather under the name of and that we proclaim together. We're in trouble if we believe we're the only good church around and we're doing everything the right way. We're not. We're not. I love this place. I love you. We're not the only good church around and we're not doing everything the right way. That's the pride of false teaching. The same thing goes for our politics. Your hope can't be in a party or a candidate. It's fine for Christians to belong to political parties. It's fine to be active in politics. But if there is no room in your politics for asking questions and even giving criticism of your candidates, or if you are under the impression that there is a political party that represents God and all that he stands for, you need to be very, very careful. For starters, political parties are way too small for God. There's a time when the Israelite army has crossed into the promised land just after their wilderness wandering. And they're about to conquer the promised land. They're on their way to Jericho, if you know that particular story. And as they begin their conquest, they're met on the road by a man. It's either a pre-incarnate Christ or a mighty angel. Scholars kind of debate. Either way, somebody represents the Lord and is powerful in him and is close to him. And the people ask if the man on the road is for them or against them? The man answers, neither. I command the Lord's army. Here's the point. God is for God, and he has his own army, and it has no worthy foe. He has no equal, and nobody comes close. He doesn't have a rival, and he doesn't need you or anybody in this world to fight for him. God will be just fine without anybody fighting for him in this world. That doesn't mean we don't contend for our faith. It doesn't mean that we don't think about that when we vote. But if you think that God's in trouble based on an election, your hope is in the wrong thing. God's for God. He commands the Lord's army, and it has no equal. The systems of this world will try to promise what only God can do. Everybody in this election is going to tell you 
that they're the Savior and things will be bad without them. Wrong. Jesus is the Savior. Things are bad without him, but he's alive, seated next to the Father on his throne in heaven, and he will come again soon. It's a form of false teaching that Jude is warning us about now. Don't put your hope in the systems of this world. Put it in Jesus. Now, two quick areas of focus for the compassionately courageous. Two areas of focus for the compassionately courageous. Continually growing in relationship with God and trusting Him fully. Continually growing in our relationship with God and trusting Him fully. Verse 20, build yourself up in faith, especially through prayer. Jude does not mean that spiritual growth is an act of human will. It's not. It's a spiritual gift from the Lord. What he's doing is tapping into the idea that nobody grows spiritually by accident. Spiritual growth comes through focusing on our relationship with God, and it comes through the fundamental things he has always taught people. Connect with him. Take seriously an authentic holiness. And now that we have the Bible in our hands, study his word. There can be a fascination with what's new and what's different, what's cool. But even the biggest trees grow consistently the same way. They develop roots, and those roots allow for growth. Plants don't grow away from their roots. They grow because of their roots. You won't grow in Christ by flirting with the pleasures of this world. Take holiness seriously. To be holy means to be set apart. Are you processing the, message, the messages that you hear? As you hear them, are you asking yourself, would God, who is set apart from this world, hear this message? How would he hear this message? And how should I, one who God has set apart through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, how should I hear the same message? And pray. Pray consistently. Asking God to give you discernment. I've never known somebody who says, I have a growing prayer life to not feel an increasing nearness and faith in God. Prayer deepens our faith in God. Prayer helps us to hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Last area, trusting God fully. In verse 21, Jude writes that he's waiting for the mercy of God that leads to eternal life. Again, it's him bringing us back to the resurrection and return of Jesus. You will not grow in mercy and grace if your hope's in this world. You, you won't grow in mercy and grace. The world can't produce in you what it doesn't have. Our present world is more defined by sin than anything else. A place immersed in sin cannot show you the way and provide for you the way out of sin. That's why we need to look beyond our world, above our world, to where God is. And God is merciful. God is grace. He is defined by grace. He lives in undescribable light. He has shown us mercy in giving us Jesus Christ. He is continuing to work out grace through the saving of people, through the a common grace that we enjoy every day, and he has promised to deliver that through Christ who comes again. 
second coming of Christ, grace will be even more evident. So trust God, hope in the resurrection, and long for the second coming all the more. You will be told a lot over the next few weeks and months. Some of it will be political. Some of it will be financial. Some of it will be medical. And there will be something more that is unexpected. To understand it, look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he is now seated at the right hand of God, and he will one day come again. Make that your hope. When that's your focus, other things will come more clearly into view. Let's pray. God, may we be a church of corporate and individual discernment. Help us to take the things that we hear, the things that we read, the things that we're told, and to ask, how does this glorify the Lord Jesus Christ who lives and reigns and one day comes again? Even with that one singular question, so much will be made clear. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this power-packed letter from Jude. May we all hope more in you because of it. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Our Savior Evangelical Free Church is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about what these words mean, visit our website at osefc.org.